Good morning, church family. For those of you who don't know me, you may be visiting. My name is Nan Clark. I am what's called a parish associate here at Third. Um, three years ago, I retired from full-time pastoral work in Philadelphia, and we moved to Richmond. And I've been volunteering here ever since. Most of what I do is uh, pastoral care and visitation. And I love it, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be here and to work with so many wonderful people. Uh, so we've reached the end of our psalm series. This is the last one. I'm so thankful for this series that we've had. Uh, I think it's enriched my prayer life. Now I find as I read a psalm, I, I'm paying attention to the words, and I, it's giving me words to pray, um, especially for things that are really hard to pray for. And so I've really appreciated that. Psalm, 10, Psalm 107, that's the third time I've done this, I'm kidding. <laughs> Psalm 107 is a psalm of thanksgiving. And probably in the Old Testament times, it was used at festivals of thanksgiving and uh, offered as part of their worship, a liturgy. Now, it's the longest psalm we've looked at, and we're going to read it in its entirety but don't worry, I've shortened the sermon a bit, so <laughs> you're, you'll be home in time for lunch. So as Gina and Mary Dryden, her daughter, read the psalm, I just encourage you to listen as it's being read, maybe not to follow along with the words, but just listen. Listen to the stories that the psalmist tells us. Listen to the things he repeats, because usually repetition means we should be paying attention. But first, let's just pray. <clears throat> Gracious God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you for your word, the gift that it is to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, breathe life into your word. May it be a living word as it speaks into our hearts and minds and souls. In Jesus' name, amen. So the psalmist really is answering three questions in this psalm. Oh, I'm sorry, you're supposed to read. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. Oh, Go give ahead. thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. 
Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their peril. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. So back to our three questions. Uh, The psalmist is answering three questions. What is Thanksgiving? Why do we pray our Thanksgiving? And what difference does it make? when we pray our thanksgiving. So we'll start with the first one. What is thanksgiving? In the mid-90s, Boyd and I were living in southern France, and as a way to get to know better some of our French friends, we decided to host a thanksgiving dinner. It was a little bit ironic because we were two Canadians living in France hosting an American Thanksgiving. (laughs) But it it was fun. Uh, We wanted to be authentic, so uh, we made sure our sons brought from uh, the States uh, cranberry sauce, which we couldn't get there, and, of course, Jell-O, because no good Thanksgiving is, uh, there's no good Thanksgiving dinner without a jelly salad. 
so we had a great time, and before we uh, sat down to eat, Boyd just spent a few minutes explaining what American Thanksgiving was, the history of it, and why we did it. And then we said that during the course of the meal, we would each take a turn and just share something we're thankful for. So a couple of people shared, and then it came to the turn of one man. And he said, this is really hard for me. He said, I'm an atheist, and I don't believe there's anybody to give thanks to. And, and then he sort of hesitated, and then, but if I was thankful, it would be for my family. <laughs> but he couldn't actually acknowledge thanks to to somebody who wasn't there. A few minutes later, another man said the same thing, that he too was an atheist, and how could he give thanks if he didn't believe anybody was there to thank? We really appreciated their honesty, and we did get to know them better than we would have otherwise. Um, But I think what they point out is a central point of thanksgiving. There must be a you in your thank you. When God's people pray our thanksgiving, it's not just an unfocused sense of gratitude that we're talking about. It's not, as a recent Time magazine article uh, suggests, cultivating a sense of gratitude that increases your sense of personal happiness. That's not what we're talking about. For the psalmist and for us, it means that we are saying thank you to God. So we know who to whom we're th- we know whom we're thanking, but let's look now at why we pray our thanksgiving. We'll start with the psalmist, seeing it from his perspective. For the psalmist, God's people pray their thanksgiving to God because God is good. From his perspective, he doesn't view God as a cosmic Santa Claus who only has good things for us so that we're happy all the time. God's goodness is real and tangible, and we see it best in his steadfast love. Like our psalm last week, the psalmist is calling us back to a fact, to a truth. God is good because of his steadfast love. I hope you noticed the way the psalmist kept coming back to that throughout the psalm. That means it's important, and we need to pay attention. So what is God's steadfast love? The psalmist understands it first in the context of the biblical story. So we'll go back and see what that looks like. In the first three chapters of Genesis, we see that God's creation is good. In fact, it's very good. The pinnacle of God's creation is when he creates human beings in his own image and he tasks them with being his representatives and ruling over his good creation. But then, as the story unfolds, we see that humans distrust God's goodness, and they reject God's good purposes for them. And so this leads to all sorts of distortions in the creation. We talk about it being a broken creation, Because the relationships between God and humans are distorted. The relationships between humans with one another are distorted. And the relationships with humans, between humans and creation, are also distorted. 
But God is not willing to leave his creation in that mess. So he sets in motion a rescue plan, a plan that will restore creation to its intended good purposes. Later in Genesis, we see that plan start to take shape when when God calls one man, Abraham, and enters into a covenant with him and his descendants. Now, in a covenant, both sides make promises. God promises to bless Abraham's descendants, to give them their own land, and to, through them, bless all the nations of the world. When the psalmist speaks of God's steadfast love, what he's describing is the way God keeps those promises that he made. And so for a minute, I just want to take a step back and look at the actual word that the psalmist uses for what we are calling God's steadfast love. And that word in the Hebrew is hesed. And I have a really good friend who's a Hebrew teacher, and he would not be happy with the way I'm saying that. But it's, I think it's more like hesed. But that's not easy for me to say, so we're going with hesed. But it's, it's a word that no single word in English can capture the full sense of. And so there's various translations that are used, including love, steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy, loyalty, favor, devotion, unfailing kindness, and covenant faithfulness. Those are all capture some of uh, what hesed means. That's the word that the psalmist uses for covenant faithfulness or steadfast love. But however we translate it, we need to understand that it's linked to God's covenant promises. And it's describing his faithfulness to keep those promises. It's not just when we use the word love, it's not just that he feels tender about us and cares for us. No, it has behind it that strong sense of God keeping his promises. My favorite translation comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is how uh, the author describes it. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, and forever love. That's the love, the steadfast love that God has, that he entered into a covenant with Israel. And it's for the rescue of the whole creation. And God bound himself to Israel with this hesed, with this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, and for forever love. But for the plan to work, both sides of the covenant had to be faithful. God was faithful. The problem was Israel wasn't. And after centuries of rebelling against God, of refusing to live as God's people, God judged their unfaithfulness and sent them out of the land that he had given them. He scattered them to the four winds, north, south, east, and west, And that scattering is what we call the exile. And it was one of the darkest times in Israel's history. So the four stories that we heard read that the psalmist recounts tell, um, and I think they really capture the overwhelming sense of helplessness, 
despair and powerlessness that these exiles felt out of their homeland. So we'll look at each of these quickly. In verse 4 through 9, we see exiles who have no city. In the ancient world, a city represented a home, belonging, resources for daily life, and protection. Instead of being safe in the city, they're wandering in the dangerous wilderness. Unlike us, they couldn't just whip out their cell phone and call up Google Maps. They were hopelessly lost without anyone to guide them. In verse 10 through 16, we see exiles imprisoned in the ancient equivalent of a gulag or a concentration camp. Their exile experience is the result of their own arrogance and self-sufficiency. They rebelled against God's good rule, and now they've fallen under the rule of some pretty cruel taskmasters. In verse 17 through 22, we see exiles who become victims of their own folly. Unlike the first group who had no food and were starving, these exiles have plenty of food, but they loathe it and they're literally starving to death, starving themselves to death. In verse 23 through 32, we see exiles who may think they have escaped the problems of captivity, but as they go about their business, even there they come face to face with their own smallness and insignificance as the mighty waves toss their ship around like a toy. All are in desperate trouble, And in their distress, they remember God's promises. They cry out to God for deliverance. And because of his said, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, and forever love, God rescues them. He leads the lost by a straight road to a safe place. He breaks the shackles of the prisoners and brings them out of darkness and the shadow of death. He heals those who are dying, and he stills the raging storm and brings the merchants to a safe haven. The psalmist sees each of these stories of rescue as evidence of God's hesed, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, and forever love to Israel. But notice that every time he exhorts the redeemed to give thanks for God's steadfast love, He adds this phrase, and for his wondrous works to the children of man. Our psalmist understands that Israel's rescue anticipates an even greater rescue, a rescue of all the nations, all the people, all the families of the earth. What he doesn't know is how that's going to happen. But we, thousands of years later, we know The fullest expression of God's hesed, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking and forever love, is when he sends his own son. In his humanity, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. He is the faithful Israelite. All the other Israelites failed to be faithful. Jesus lives in obedience to his father. And through his faithfulness, God extends his rescue to all peoples and all families. That's why the psalmist exhorts the returned exiles to pray their thanksgiving. But what about us? 
Why do we pray our thanksgiving? George Adams, a third member who suggested this psalm, recognized that these pictures of Israel's exile are not just about Israel. They actually describe the human condition apart from God, whether from our own foolishness, our own rebellion, or because of the sins of others. And the way God rescued them is actually a picture of the way Jesus rescues us. Jesus rescues us from the wilderness of meaninglessness and lack of purpose. In a culture that defines our values, our value as human beings by what we do, what school or college we go to, where we live, Jesus gives us a new identity as children of God. We become important not for what we do, but for who we are. We all desire to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And Jesus invites us to live in his story and to become part of his rescue mission. Jesus rescues us from the prisons of our own making, the drive for acceptance and approval, the need to excel at everything, the prisons of ours or others' expectations, I spent years in the prison of anger. Actually, somebody came up to me after the last second service and said, I have a hard time believing you were angry. <laughs> I said, yeah, everybody thinks I'm nice Nan, but I, <laughs> I could be really angry. And, and over a period of years, I just nursed that anger and the bitterness. It led to health problems for me, and it robbed me of so much joy. And I cried out to Jesus for deliverance. And he taught me to forgive. He taught me to let him be God and trust in his goodness. Jesus rescues us from the folly of thinking we're free to do whatever we want, to satisfy our every desire. It's a folly that leads to slavery, to food, drugs, money, sex, the internet, the things we think we must have but that end up enslaving and destroying us. Jesus rescues us from the fear of living in a broken and fallen world that sometimes threatens to undo us. As Hurricane Harvey spins across Texas and continues to wreak havoc, we come face to face with how small we really are and how little control we really have. We believe that somehow we can manage and control things when in reality we all suffer from the unexpected storms of life, from broken relationships, lost jobs, illness, and even death. When I was a child, uh, I had this just overwhelming fear of death. I think some of it had to do with the... (laughs) Cuban Missile Crisis, and, you know, always the fear that the Russians were going to invade and there was going to be nuclear war. And, but I was terrified. I had nightmares all the time. I had to sleep in certain positions um, so that I couldn't see certain things, and it, it just was like bondage. And that was actually what drew me to, to Christ. Um, I cried out to him in, in my fear And he spoke a word of peace into my life. And I think it's interesting that now one of the greatest honors I have 
is to officiate at funerals. Because of Jesus, I know that death is not the final word. So we stand in a long line of God's people who have cried out to Jesus to rescue us. We join our voices with theirs as we pray our thanksgiving to God for his hesed, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, and forever love. So we pray our thanksgiving to God. We pray it because he's good and faithful to keep his promises. But what difference does it make when we pray our thanksgiving? I think there's two things that it does, two ways that it makes us wise. The end of the psalm says, consider the ways of of the the steadfast love of the Lord. To do that is wisdom. So the first way it makes us wise is it because it drives us back to the fact of God's steadfast love. As we tell our stories and give thanks for the way Jesus rescues us, we remember that God's purposes for the world are bigger than us, but they do include us. And the second way it makes us wise is because it gives us a perspective on our present suffering. We may not understand how God is working out his purposes, but we can trust that he is. Our struggles and our sorrows are real, but it may not only be about us. It may be part of what God is doing to restore others in ways that we can't see or imagine. Who would have thought that Jesus' suffering and death would mean life for us. The goal of God's plan is to make all things new again. When we pray our thanksgiving, we're looking back to what God has done in Jesus, and we're also anticipating what is yet to come. Just like Corey talked about last week, our praise is eschatological. Our thanksgiving also is eschatological. It's looking forward as well as looking back. So the fact, the truth of God's hesed is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, and forever love has been an anchor for me. Some days I read the paper, I listen to the radio, I see people's Facebook posts, I think about our city, our nation, our world, I think about my own struggles with sin, And I think about the deep waters that threaten to overwhelm so many of you. And I just have such a deep, deep angst in my heart. It's very physical. I feel sick. It's just overwhelming. At those times, I go back to the facts. God is good. He has bound himself to us with his covenant promises. And because of his steadfast love, we can pray our thanksgiving to God, even as we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that you have bound yourself in covenant love and that you keep your promises. Jesus, we thank you that you are 
the faithful Israelite, and that your faithfulness means that we can know freedom and the fullness of human life as you intended it to be. We ask, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to trust that you are good and that your steadfast love endures forever. Amen.